This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, who are offering our listeners a free trial of unlimited access to their entire library if you visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I am Andy Wood. And our guest is joining from the UK, uh, a an old friend of mine from university who has gone on to be a journalist for New Scientist and uh, someone who actually carried on doing sciencey things and has now written a book about the origin of life. It is called The Genesis Quest, The Geniuses and Eccentrics on a Journey to Uncover the Origin of Life on Earth. Hey, Michael Marshall, how are you doing? Hey, Matt, I'm really well, thanks. Uh, this is, we should also explain at the top because there are... You've been mentioned on the show before because articles you've written in New Scientist and in other places have been read out on the show uh, but there's also there are two michael marshalls both of whom have been referenced on the show yes this comes up a lot actually yes I, there's the there's the one who works with the skeptics people in the north of england who did the uh, homeopathy overdose yeah and i'm not him and i've had to tell the guardian that repeatedly uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was wondering if you get each other's emails and so on it's yeah it's it's come up um he they they once tried to pay him for an article that i'd written um <laughs> we had to have a sort of and they were very, and they were very apologetic bless them i just i was like okay you know what the, the, there's things i could get cross with them for for like being really stupid and then that was just like you know what we do actually have the same name and we even look alike like i wear glasses and i don't think he does but apart from that you actually if you passed us in a crowd you genuinely might get muddled <laughs> <laughs> oh man um, so so let's let's talk about the book because I haven't I didn't know much until I read it about so I I understand evolution fairly well at least the basic principles of it I think sure. and natural selection but that bit before it that I didn't realize how little it's understood or how little we know about what it is that actually jump started the first life that could then evolve yeah it's what. It's one of those questions that's it's kind of completely fascinated me since I was actually quite little. Um, like when I was a kid, I, like a lot of people, I had a big book about dinosaurs. And there was a before it got onto the, the stuff about the dinosaurs, there was this introduction about the geological time scale. And so it had all the other different periods of Earth's history, like the Jurassic and the Cretaceous and whatnot. And it went all the way back to the Cambrian, which is the period of sort of starting about 540 million years ago when uh, the first sort of complex animals appeared. And then before that, there was just this huge blank bit. And it just said pre-Cambrian. And this <laughs> went on for four billion years. So like, uh. you know, like eight ninths of the history of the planet. And it and there was just this line that said, this vast span of time that we call the pre-Cambrian, something, something is completely unknown. And I just remember thinking as like a 10 year old, or whatever, that is both fascinating and kind of eerie. And like, how do you not know anything about it? <laughs> like, why is it? So, you know? And what I sort of then sort of came to understand was that that was a time when almost all life was single cell. So, you know, you don't have you know, nothing with like skeletons or anything that might sort of fossilize easily. It's all single cell things like bacteria. And so, that, you know, for the first, you know, for hundreds of years of sort of scientific study, there wouldn't like no fossils from it. And so it was just this sort of complete blank mystery. Um, and so that sort of, and that kind of 
sort of yeah eerie, sort of eerie empty period that is most of our planet's history kind of stuck with me ever since ever since then sort of when I became a science journalist I thought well I'm going to write about that that's going to be one of my things I started writing about it uh, as much as I could and um, well here we are and now you got a book, and now you're you're on the show, which I think is probably the most exciting thing about the whole journey. <laughs> I, you have no idea how much of a career highlight this is for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let's let's talk about um, the, the book starts off back in the day, the earliest theories as to how life came into being, and rival theories. So yes, there was vitalism. So vitalism, I'm not sure if you could even call it a theory. It was the, it was almost like um, an assumption and often a, a sort of semi-unconscious assumption. It's just um, the idea that I think most of us have really, that there's something really special about living things. Like we, we sort of, a lot of us, I think, have this intuitive idea that there's a really hard divide between non-living things like this table that I'm sitting at or a rock. Uh, and then on the other hand, something like a stampeding bull elephant. That, yeah, that right. Life feels kind of almost magic. Um, it was like, we don't, you know, how is it that these things like move and sort of see us and seem to like think and they grow and they reproduce? And it's just kind of wildly amazing in a way that to most people, rocks aren't. Right. And that's something you return to at the end of the book as well. But I guess it's a running theme through the whole thing is what, what even is life? There's, I didn't realize there's no real, there's no agreed upon definition. And in fact, no. there are many, many different definitions of what life is, none of which really fully encompass all of the possibilities. I, yeah, I would say not. I mean, I think there, there's a review that I, a review paper that I mentioned in the book, which found 200 odd um, definitions. And that was after the guy had gone through and like sort of weeded out the ones that were exactly the same thing, but just in different language. Um <laughs> And yeah, and some of them, you know, they they really don't line up with each other very much at all. And it it becomes really difficult to write down a sentence that both encompasses everything that we think of as being alive, and that doesn't also include things like cars or fire. <laughs> like, yeah, you because know, you think about fire, you know, it feeds and it grows, and in a sense, it kind of reproduces. Because uh, you know, if you if you know, if you put an, a bit of wood in a fire, you'll start a whole new fire. Um, right. So, and it becomes quite difficult to sort of to to write something down. And you know, there's there's a couple of definitions that I think get quite close to it. There's one that was come up with by a NASA committee in the early 1990s that has had quite a lot of play. Um, but even that sort of has its um, difficulties, and it's sort of you kind of have to read it charitably in a sense. Like if you re if you read it in the right spirit, oh yeah, that gets it. But then if you sort of start to nitpick it, you start to think to yourself, well, hang on. Um, it says that life has to be capable of Darwinian evolution. So doesn't that exclude worker bees because they can't reproduce? Um, so they don't they don't take part in Darwinian evolution. You know, the queen does, but the workers don't. And yet, I think we all pretty much agree that worker bees are alive. And you can make right. you could almost make you could make a the same argument about like postmenopausal women or men who've had a vasectomy. You know, we can't participate in evolution anymore. But mm, I'm definitely still alive. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and then cars, you mentioned as well, uh, well, you f that you, you feed cars with fuel and then they move and they yeah. respond to stimuli. Yeah. And if, it's an, and if it's like an artificial driving type car, 
it does an awful lot of it. You know, it sort of you know drives autonomously down the road, um, often better than humans do. But right. yeah, it's but yeah, but we never say it was alive. Um, so yeah, it becomes really difficult. And after a while, we I just you kind of have to throw up your hands a little bit and accept that this might be one of those things where it's because it's a division that we're imposing on the world and it's not a natural division. It's not something that's really there necessarily. There's not a hard dividing line. So a, a, a good sort of counterexample might be something like protons and electrons where like a proton has like a really defined mass and it has a completely defined electric charge and it has this whole other list of properties and it doesn't vary. You don't have something that's like almost a proton, but not quite. It's either a proton or it's something else. And there's, you know, you can completely define it. Um, whereas, yeah, life is just sort of this fuzzy thing, and it's and it edge and some some things kind of edge into being alive, but are not quite. So I think you know the classic example there is viruses, which yeah, you know, for a lot of scientists, a lot of scientists will tell you that a virus ain't alive at all because it can't reproduce without the help of something else, without the help of another living thing. Um, but right. is that you know is that enough? On the other, it's definitely not not alive in the way that a rock isn't alive. You know, it's more life alive than a rock is, but it's not quite as alive as we are. Maybe. Right. So yeah, it's kind of a it's a continuum. It's a spectrum. Oh. Well, de- debate and different definitions is very much a theme of the book as well. It seems like at any stage in history, because you go through history and you go through the sort of the progression and the. It seems weird to use the word evolution when you're talking about evolution, but the evolution of ideas <laughs> uh, over time and, and the different re- yeah. rebuttings. It starts like quite a way back with Pasteur and Pouchet, right? Yeah, so that's kind of um, the Pasteur story is kind of um, it's almost backstory in a sense because Pasteur wasn't necessarily thinking about how life began, but he what he was trying to disprove was this idea that's called spontaneous generation, which was that a lot of um, living organisms just sort of pop up out of non-living matter all the time. Um, so there was this idea that things like bacteria or um, parasitic worms and things like that just kind of came out of nowhere. Because the, the, the reason being was that nobody actually understood their their life cycle. You know, we didn't understand um, where paras- you know where parasitic worms came from. And in fact, often because they have like really weird and complicated lifestyles where one stage looks completely um, different to the other. Right. If you um, if you just leave some rotting fruit in the bin for too long, then flies will suddenly appear in that fruit. Yes. Even though there was no sign of a fly parent that made yeah, it happen. Yeah. Exactly. You you have to watch quite carefully, <laughs> and then you know, you'll eventually you know if you if you really track it closely, you'll notice that something did come in and lay some eggs. But um, yeah, you have to be you have to do really careful experiments. And so Pouchet, um, Pasteur did these um, really quite sly experiments to show that um, microbes don't just come out of nowhere. So he basically f- found ways to completely sterilize um, these mixtures. So he, he basically made these sort of mixtures that had like um, sugars and stuff in them. So liquid that you would think that a microbe would love and eat, but then he, he sort of boiled it to kill anything. And then he gave the, he put it in a flask, which had a swan neck, shape so in the shape of an s and what would happen was that the any microbes that tried to sort of wander in would just get trapped in the bends of that neck and so they wouldn't get into the actual liquid and so no mold would form on it but then after he'd sort of left it for a while and demonstrated hey look nothing happens he did this sort of cool and dramatic thing where he snapped off the neck and then the micro you know microbes in the egg could get in and mold and gack formed all over it um and so that was sort of 
quite strong experimental evidence that in fact you know life isn't just forming all the time out of nowhere it ha- you know it's pre-existing and it's all around us and you have to control really carefully to keep it out of things but it doesn't just pop up out of nothing which then, of course, creates the problem of, well, where does it come from then? Right, right. Right, yeah, that's a, the first big question of the book of what was the first living organism? And we've kind of touched on it when you were talking about the definition of life in that it's sort of hard to say. Yeah, very hard to say. And like over the years, people have had a lot of um, different ideas about what sort of thing it might have been. Um, so, you, yeah, you mentioned that, you know, I mean, I think the the first idea that sort of got a lot of like real attention from other scientists and that sort of became accepted as like a leading hypothesis uh, was actually put forward originally in the 1920s by this Russian scientist named Alexander Oparin. Um, so he was working, you know, this was the, you know, the, I say Russia, this was the USSR, right? So this was um, a communist dictatorship and he was working under Stalin. And right. his, sorry? Yeah, the book turns into a bit of a political thriller at this point. Um, yes, doesn't. It turns into a bit of a political thriller at this point. There's a, uh, there's subterfuge and betrayal and traitors. Yes. yes, there's people who get sent to the gulag and all of all of that um, wonderful Cold War stuff that we're all so glad we don't have to deal with anymore. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Apparently, we're sort of wrapped up in this whole um, Soviet project to sort of control what science was and the things that it would discover. And there was this whole um, movement within Soviet science to discredit the entire science of genetics. So the idea that genes exist and that they're passed on from like parent to offspring was sort of treated as this completely ridiculous idea, um, which... Yeah, you read about it now and it just seems surreal. Like, how could they possibly have not thought genes exist? How could they possibly have convinced themselves of it? But part of how they convinced themselves of it was that Stalin was really keen on this. And so if you did, if you went up against Stalin, you were liable to get sent to a camp and you weren't going to come back. So they'd be like, oh, no, 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 genes. No, it's no, this is, this is all nonsense. This is made up by the West. This doesn't, this isn't true. And this sort of went on for years, um, and it's and it it's not impossible that this actually is one of the factors that ultimately contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union because it just wrecked their entire um, farming economy. Because they, you know, whereas in the West they were sort of you know using um, you know genetic you know genetics and whatnot to sort of create all these amazing new crops and feed the world. In the Soviet Union, they were just sort of um, struggling. <laughs> very very badly and uh, you know they suffered repeated famines um should i tell you about apparent and what, what he actually came up with um so like his apparent's idea was that yeah if you go back in time um billions of years to when the earth first formed um there was obviously there was no life and so what it was was essentially a gigantic chemical factory so there would have been lots of carbon-based chemicals like initially really simple things like carbon dioxide and methane uh you know things where it's just like you know you know two or three or four um atoms per molecule um and then you know these would have been sort of bathed in sunlight and they'd be heated by volcanoes and all this stuff and so they would just start reacting and changing and all sorts of different carbon-based chemicals would form and then eventually, when the planet had sort of cooled down enough from its formation that liquid water could exist, well, first of all, it probably 
bucketed down and then um, the oceans formed and all these chemicals became dissolved in the ocean. And so this is, and it becomes sort of highly concentrated and kind of thick, uh, a bit like soup. And so this is, you know, if you've ever heard the phrase primordial soup or primeval sure. soup, this is where it comes from. Um, the funny thing is, though, that Apparin didn't actually call it that. Um, the soup idea seems to come from a British scientist named J.B.S. Haldane, who wrote quite a similar idea uh, just in a short article later in the 1920s. Seems to have been completely independent of Apparin. He doesn't seem to have like read the thing that Apparin had been writing. He just kind of came up with roughly the same idea um, around about the same time. Uh, and, and Haldane, who had a real um, turn of phrase came up with the idea that it was like soup. Um, okay. And so the idea was that, you know, as these sort of chemicals dissolved in the soup, what would have happened was that you would have got little blobs of um, fatty jelly-like stuff, like just like little droplets of them. And those would have been the precursors to cells. So just a really, really crude version of a cell. And then within those, you know, other chemicals would have accumulated and started um, carrying out the kind of reactions that we would now think of as metabolism so the react you know, sort of taking in a nutrient from outside and digesting it breaking it down into something else and then using it to make something else you know maybe some you know some component of the cell that it needs um and i'll be honest that that was basically the level my knowledge was at so i <laughs> I, I i i really didn't think that we'd advanced much beyond that and i didn't know how much information there was beyond that so given that the book is roughly chronological and roughly goes through the sort of the growth of human understanding i was basically somewhere around the 19th century oh no no you've made it to the 1920s give you know, give yourself oh, some oh, credit you, <laughs> you oh, were basically you were basically a century out of date uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know century. yeah you um but actually way, how, sorry come on um, how, how did Oparin like since it is so hard to have actual evidence in the forms of like fossils and things of this era what what was the actual basis for his theory in terms of um observed? he he mostly just kind of thought of it oh. um he did do some experiments uh later on where he tried to make these kind of fatty droplet things um his experiments didn't actually tend to go terribly well like later later on in the book one of the other scientists a guy called sydney fox um uh, went to visit him in moscow and saw one of these experiments and it just completely flopped and apparently it was incredibly embarrassing and apparently was just sitting there like with his head in his hands because oh no <laughs> this is this is this was my moment and it's oh, yeah um but I mean, he was sort of drawing on a lot of the biology that was known at the time, you know, so, you know, we, you know, at this time, sort of uh, biologists were starting to understand about things like metabolic reactions um, and the basics of like what a cell is made of in terms of, you know, there's a fat, you know, there's a fatty lipid membrane around the outside and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the middle. And so Apparin was, you know, was drawing on that and he was also drawing on geology um, and sort of, you know, geochemistry in particular, you know, the chemistry of rocks and the chemistry of the atmosphere. So he was, yeah, he was drawing on a whole bunch of stuff that was known or semi-known, but he didn't have a whole lot of experimental evidence for any of this, really. Mm -hmm. and, and then along comes Yuri and Miller. 
Which... Yes. Um, and this is sort of the, like, the totemic story of the origin of life field, because this is the first um, big experiment, um, which is bizarre because kind of with hindsight, it's not actually the most amazing experiment at all. But at the time, it was just very dramatic. Because um, there was this idea that, you know, that, that, like I was saying earlier, that because life is so different to non-life, there was this idea that it would be quite, it must have been really difficult to make the chemicals of life, you know, the, the chemicals that go into making up living things. And then these guys, Miller and Yuri, came along and showed that actually it might not be so hard after all. Um, so Yuri was this, you know, a fairly... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was like an older, very established scientist. Like he'd won the Nobel Prize already in the 1930s, um, and then by the the early 1950s, you know, he was you know coming up on 60. He was like, oh, I, I could just sort of sit around and do nothing, uh, and just sort of chill for the last few years of my career. Oh no, what the hell? Fuck it. Let's let's take a big gamble on a very very green graduate student who's come up with this completely um, ambitious, probably an unfeasible idea. Fuck it. Let's just let him do it. Let's see what see what <laughs> see what happens. See what happens. How how wrong can it go? Um, and Miller's idea was uh, so Miller was this yeah Stanley Miller was this um, very young graduate student, and he had come to Yuri and said, "Look, why don't we try and just make some of the the chemicals that go into living things, um, just from like really really basic chemicals like um, ammonia and methane and water." because um, that's probably what was around on the early Earth. Um, let's, you know, why don't we just sort of build a sort of simple glass apparatus with those things in it and, like, heat it a bit and see what happens. And it's it's such a simple experiment. It's so insanely simple. Um, Scientific American actually used to do a little handout for high school students um, to replicate this, because it's that easy. Um, right. It's like, you know, Mil- you know, Miller went from having the idea to getting it published in science in eight months. You know, it was wow. ridiculously quick. And this is partly because Yuri was a Nobel Prize winner and he just browbeat the editor of science into taking this thing. But even so, um, so yeah, they, they just set up these two, basically two glass flasks connected by tubes. One of the glass flasks has water in it and that's basically meant to be the ocean. And then the other glass flask has a mixture of simple gases in it, which is meant to be the air. And he heated the water flask and he had a little electrode in the air bit to simulate lightning strikes. And he just kind of left it for a few days and it turned yellow and then brown. And when he sort of got it out, got the mixture out and started analysing it, he realised that he'd made an amino acid. And amino acids are, this was like an immediate sort of, oh, wow, because amino acids are the building blocks of proteins and proteins are one of the most important molecules. You know, they're found in like literally every living thing and they're um, completely central to almost everything that goes on inside living cells. Like if you take the proteins away, you basically don't have a cell. And he'd made the first building block of one in a couple of days with the simplest setup he could possibly have come up with. Um now, with hindsight, and you can do this at home, listeners. You, you, if if you're a high school chemistry student, you could, yeah, you could totally do this at home. Um, I don't know where you'd get the all the chemicals from. Good luck with that. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. As I say, yeah, you can you can probably still find the Scientific American handout somewhere online. There's probably a a, a JPEG of it kicking around. Um, do be careful with the electrode. <laughs> um if anything happens to you it's it's not my fault uh i didn't encourage you to do this yeah it was ours 
So Matt, obviously we encourage our listeners to check out the book, The Genesis Quest. But they certainly if, should. If they are interested in uh, approaching this subject from a, a different angle media-wise, is, is there an option for that somehow? Well, well yes, there is, Andy. <laughs> It's, it, it's so weird that you would ask that question and bring that up because out of the craziest coincidence, an even crazier coincidence than the building blocks of life coming together in the perfect conditions in the early ages of the Earth that eventually evolved into us, an even crazier coincidence is that we are currently sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, a, an online resource of thousands of college-level lectures on just about any topic you could choose, you could think of, and well, we've been checking out one that's quite appropriate, I think, for this course, a, a bit of a deeper dive into some of the issues that Michael talks about in his book. The course is Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, How Life Works. And it, it goes into, so you know, in, in Michael's book, he mentions things like amino acids and peptide bonds and proteins. And there is a half hour lecture on each of these in this course that really goes deep into these concepts you actually know what when michael talks in his book about protein folding and so on what that actually is you can find out from a college level professor who has been chosen like all the lecturers on the great courses plus for his skill both as a scientist or expert in his field and a communicator of his field yeah he's a professor of biochemistry and biophysics at oregon state university up near where i used to live it is i do miss being able to travel Oh, man. Someday. Should, I, well, should can... I have not brought that up? <laughs> no, no, no. You could travel from the comfort of your own home, thanks to The Great Courses Plus. You could explore the world if you want to see any number of courses. I, I, if you just type in the word travel, I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to go to The Great Courses Plus. <laughs> well, and... well, while you're at it, the other one that we have been looking at this week, which is just a bit of a, you know, along those subjects of it's been a stressful couple of most of a year yeah yeah it's pretty much a year now yeah <laughs> it almost is isn't it and uh, there is a new cognitive behavioral therapy course i mentioned it a while ago that there's there's one that really goes into what cbt is and we talked about it a while back with dr jane gregory there is now a course cognitive behavioral therapy for daily life that you've been doing right andy yeah this is a really cool thing i mean basically everything is online now anyway even if you're taking um if you're having traditional therapy, you're doing it via Zoom, and that's probably costing you a fair amount. But if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably, you could have a free trial of everything in The Great Courses Plus, and you could get basically free therapy in the form of this cognitive behavioral therapy course. Okay. I, we probably should say, I don't okay, think, okay. They, I don't think they build it, it as free therapy. Okay, fine, fine. But, you, <laughs> yeah, but you know, you can you can explore the CBT toolbox and and um, yeah. I, it seems like just a perfect thing for, for COVID times for people who are just uh, dealing with anxiety, which I'm sure we all are, even it, if you weren't before. So It is. I'm particularly looking forward to lecture seven, worry, rumination, and sticky thoughts. Oh, I have no idea what that is. What is that, Matt? I have no experience with these things. <laughs> yeah, you've never, you've, you know, yeah, you, you're not a warrior, Andy, <laughs> but some people, <laughs> some people dwell on thoughts. I know that's completely alien to no, you as a concept. No idea, no idea. But anyway, uh, we, we, you, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know the deal. We love them. You can watch or listen to any of their courses across any different platform it works on the phone on the computer on your tv you can jump between them you can listen to it as a podcast when you're driving you can watch it when you get home and you can get a free trial as andy said of access to 
any of their courses, any and all of their courses in one go, like a fantastic library of all of the thought of the world. Yeah. If you go to the greatcoursesplus.com slash probably. That Check is it. the great co- <laughs> Oh, now we're going to ruminate about that. Oh, yeah, crosstalk. right? I know. God damn it. I'm going to be thinking about that forever until I get to lecture seven yep. of this course and can learn how to wipe it out. <laughs> but that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. That's the start of a series of experiments, right? That That's kind of the first time someone really set out in earnest to try to in some way recreate life or recreate the conditions of life. Yes, yes. And it was sort of, uh, yeah, there'd been a few sort of um, vague attempts at it before, but nothing that had really um, produced anything terribly impressive, whereas this did impress people. And so in, almost immediately, there there's like this sort of little cottage industry sprung up of people who were trying to do either variants on the Miller experiments or like just whole new approaches to it. Um, and this whole field that's now called prebiotic chemistry, so as in you know, just before life, um, sprang up pretty much overnight. And sort of by the, you know, by the end of the 50s, there were a whole bunch of labs that were doing this kind of thing. And they managed to make you know, se- you know, several of the other really important molecules of life. But quite quickly, they ran into some problems because you know, one of the things that's really nice about Miller's experiment is that, like I said, it's idiotically simple. Like, yeah, he literally just set it up and left it. Um, whereas a lot of these other experiments, they were having to do what you know, they were having to actually work at it, right? You know, they'd have to sort of, you know, pour something into a flask and then heat it for a bit and then like decant it into something else and do something else to it. And that starts to feel a little bit like artificial. Like, would that necessarily happen? You know, wh- right, you've, right. you've got to sort of come up with something with like a plausible scenario for how this, for how this stuff could have actually taken place in that sequence. Because if it's got to take place in a really specific sequence, and if you get any step wrong, then it doesn't work. You've you've got a problem. This you know this starts to not be very believable. Right. Even even though the, the plausibility can be relatively low, just because of the timescales that are being talked about. The timescale thing is a really interesting one, because, yeah, part of the idea here is that, yeah, we've got, you know, billions of years of Earth history to play with, so what does it matter? You know, if something's a bit unlikely, well, it only has to happen once, there's a whole planet, and you've got ages of time. The trouble is that when people have, um, people sort of started using that as a bit of a crutch, to be honest, and I think that a lot of the early research kind of just leans on that, um, oh, well, what does it matter, quite hard. And then as... um, people have sort of pushed back that push the fossil record back it starts to become much less plausible so at this point you know i said at the start that um you know you know when i was a kid you know the fossil record went back so there's something like 500 or so million years and there wasn't too much known before that well now things look very different now at, at this point the oldest confirmed like everyone agrees fossils of living things are three and a half billion years old so that's really yeah so these are fossils of something like bacteria that sort of lived in thin layers or mats you know they're um they're, and they come from a place called pilbara in western australia and they would you know and these sort of rock beds have been have been studied since the early 1980s and they've been gone over like in a lot of detail and that yeah that 
a lot of these sort of really old fossils they get fought over and people sort of say oh you know i'm not sure that's real that could just be um you know like a weird rock formation or something that's been like heated or distorted in some way you know maybe it's not real but pretty much everyone seems to agree about these ones and so that suddenly narrows the window a lot you've only got um, one billion years so you know because the earth formed four and a half billion years ago these things are three and a half billion years old so you've got one billion years to play with and you know right that's not too short but it's quick you know it, you know obviously and obviously you know it's kind of easy to toss around a billion years that's a huge span of time but even so, suddenly it doesn't look quite as expansive as it did, especially because we actually think that probably life is even older than that. Yeah, these, the problem is that the rock, the fossil record just gets rubbish um, after that because there's so few um, rocks that are preserved from earlier times that are in any kind of decent shape. So, you know, they've been heated or crushed or whatever. And so any, whatever evidence is in them has been trashed. And so, you know, people find evidence of life from earlier. There, you know, there's been papers published saying that they found traces of life from like 4.1 billion years ago um like we don't know if that's true um i wouldn't personally bet against it Uh, you know i'd be you know i I wonder and i wonder if in like 20 or 30 years time we might have like quite hard evidence of that but for now it's all very sort of sketchy and contested because it as because the rock record's so bad but that's starting to really narrow it you know if if there there was life 4.1 billion years ago and you've got less than half a billion years and right. now it's and, starting to look narrow. And also, the in that period of time, the Earth was changing quite a bit, right? Uh, not as much as it changed once life came onto it, but still, the geologically and the atmosphere was changing, and sort of the amount of volcanoes and so on, and that kind of activity was changed. So, if there's a perfect combination of chemicals that would help life that would only exist for a fraction of that time as well. Well, quite possibly, yeah. I mean, we don't, I mean, part of the problem is that we don't exactly know what that perfect combination of chemicals would be. But yeah, there were, yeah, there were huge changes going on, you know, for the, particularly in the first sort of billion years or two, there were a lot of meteorites coming in, uh, often like big ones, you know, the sort of thing that later on in the history of life would wipe out um, all the dinosaurs except for the birds. Um, so, you know, big sort of, apocalypse level meteorites and these just came in like every few i don't know like every few tens of millions of years or something you know it was it was kind of rough and was that just because the solar system had was still in the process of forming so it was just more detritus around yeah or yeah like basically yeah because oh. all the all the planets sort of formed around about the same time and then there was this sort of period of um yeah kind of chaos when these you know the remaining rocks that hadn't yet um got sucked into a planet either found somewhere to settle down like the asteroid belt or yeah hit something and quite so a lot it's like of them the hit piles there. of bricks that are left over at a building site yes yes and, 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 and as if someone was taking those bricks and just lobbing them in random <laughs> right. directions and just, i wonder what happens this can't this can't go wrong oops just find um, the biggest bird you can and whack a brick at it yeah and <laughs> so that must have you know it seems likely that it's kind of hard to know what to make of that, right? So on one level, you sort of think to yourself, well, that must be a problem, right? <laughs> you know, surely, you know, if you've got like this sort of nascent bit of life, you're just sort of sitting in a pond somewhere on the earth and then like a meteorite smacks down on top of it, that's probably going to be the end of that life, right? Mm-hmm. But 
On the other hand, these meteorites might actually have been in um, in a different way kind of useful. Like maybe they were bringing in useful chemicals that weren't present on the Earth, or maybe they were sort of st- triggering um, local volcanic activity. You know, because, you know, you get to have a meteorite come down, it smacks hard into the ground, and often that will sort of trigger a bit of um, geothermal or hydrothermal activity, and, um, which sort of, you know, makes for complicated and interesting environments which are probably the sort of places where life might form so maybe the meteorites coming in were a good thing in in the long run they obviously weren't a good thing if you were right underneath them um or maybe they were just a problem and yeah this is this is one of those very live questions well and also while while we're talking about things coming from space we can't not talk about you you do devote a certain amount of the book to <laughs> the idea of whether, and, and it, it, quite a dismissive way, but with good cause, the idea that life might have come from another planet. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, I do kind of knock this quite a bit. Um, let me sort of start by being fair. Like, it's not a completely stupid idea, right? Um, I, part of it, it's called the idea that life came to Earth from somewhere else. It's called panspermia, and it's been around for like a long time. People were talking about this in the nineteenth century, at least, and there was, you know, it was a very serious book by a very respectable um, Swedish scientist called Svante Arrhenius sort of early in the 20th century uh, sort of you know, making a very ingenious argument for this um, and on the one hand it does kind of have an advantage right because if you're sort of in that state of thinking oh, well you know the origin of life is incredibly unlikely and it's, it's like a you know, trillion to one chance well if, you're, if you imagine that life could have come from somewhere else and you suddenly you've, you've improved your odds because you don't have to worry about oh it's it's only the Earth and you know it must have you know this million to one chance must have happened somewhere on this planet. Suddenly you've got all the other planets in the galaxy um, to sort of to play with. Right, um, you bought a billion times more lottery tickets. Yes, exactly. Um, but there's a number of problems. The first thing is that um, if so, the, you know. The idea behind panspermia is that, you know, something like um, bacteria or something are, are being sort of um, carried up into space and they're surviving in space for a long time as they sort of drift between the solar systems and then they're raining down onto the Earth. So first problem is that we haven't found life anywhere else. And that is kind of problematic, right? Because if it's if it's sort of wafting around all through the universe, why don't we? Why haven't we sort of found like obvious evidence of it on Mars? Why don't we um, see like microbes crashing onto the, you know, landing on the side of the International Space Station? If you went and took a sample out there, um, why don't we find dead microbes on the Moon? Um, you know, obviously you wouldn't expect to find anything alive there, right? Because it's completely inhospitable. But we have samples of moon rocks, and you'd you'd think that there might be like bacterial corpses or something like lying there, and there aren't. You know, the moon rocks are completely sterile. So right, and something going through space through the solar system is pretty much as likely to hit the Mars and the Moon as it is to hit Earth. Yeah, there's nothing particularly special about like about the Earth and why you know why that you know they wouldn't necessarily converge here. Um so that's sort of yeah, that's kind of one of the problems. And then the other the other issue is well how long does do things survive in space? And this is sort of an active area of research. So people you know people do experiments where they take like 
bacteria or um, tardigrades, you know, those cute little water baby things that are just basically right, right. indestructible. Yeah, they've uh, they, yeah. the show. Yeah, and they put them on, you know, in a, in, a, in a little sort of box or something on the outside of the International Space Station and just leave it there for a bit and see what happens. And, you know, and some of them do pretty well. You know, you, find, you see things that, like, manage to... where some of the population at least survives for, like, a year... And that's, you know, that's pretty good. You know, um, if, if something can survive for like a year or two or, or like a decade, something like that, that's enough time to like drift within the solar system. You know, that's, you know, that you could sort of, you know, you, you have a tolerable chance of getting from like Mars to Earth or something like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously most things would just completely miss, but one or two would. Um, but it's useless um, for trying to do interstellar travel. Like, because for that, you're going to need to be able to survive for thousands of years. Yeah. And, you know, and you're going to be bathed in radiation from the sun and it's cold and all sorts of like weird chemical reactions will happen that are nothing that probably not thing you want to have happen to you to you if you're a bacterium so i'm not sure that you actually buy really that that much right. um ad- advantage you, know, you get the advantage you get the possibility that life could have formed on mars and then been brought to earth but that's only one more planet it's not that helpful really um this doesn't right. and then and then the other arguments that you make in the book which i like is that it's just sort of a cop out is it's kind of the same as the who made god argument yeah exactly it's a, it's basically a cheat uh because you're set you yeah you're sort of you're you're instead of grappling with the actual question of like well how did a living cell first emerge you know, what what happened with the chemicals what sort of setting was required all of that you just sort of brush all of that away and say well i can't answer it it's just wildly unlikely and i'm just gonna like chuck it open to the size of the universe and say well it happened by chance somewhere and it's not impossible that that's correct i suppose but it just feels like a crap answer to me um you know the the i think the, the sort of analogy i made in the book was that yeah when a if you were to sort of ask like how is a car made or how you know how do they get um the stripe into a tube of toothpaste or whatever and if the answer came back well some people did it You'd think, well, that's that's just a shit answer. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, I know, but but could you elaborate? Um, and in the same way, this is just sort of saying, well, well, the the you know, the laws of chance did it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but how? Yeah, right. So, over the twentieth century and now into the twenty first, they've there's been more and more refined ideas, but it, they all seem to run into the same chicken and egg situation, where each aspect needs some needs the thing that was already there to have created it yes yes and this just and this just constantly comes up and it's kind of it's a consequence of like the molecular biology revolution which sort of began funnily enough in 1953 so in the same year that miller published his experiment that's also the year that the structure of dna was discovered you know they were within a couple of months of each other um right so i hadn't realized how intertwined those two stories are you go into like Crick, Watson, and Franklin are all involved in this. Yeah, exa- exactly. Because, um, you know, the, and that's kind of, you know, the central story of biology in the 20th century, really, is the discovery of, like, you know, DNA and how, you know, within a cell, DNA is essentially the instructions for making all the proteins that are in the cell, and then the proteins within the cell basically do all the work. Um, 
and you know that was and that whole sort of incredibly complicated story of what is happening inside even the simplest living cell was unfolding over the 50s and 60s and 70s at the same time as these first prebiotic chemistry reaction um, experiments were being done so you, when you think about sort of someone like Aparin in the 1920s his hypothesis you got, it seems mind-boggling to us today but he was writing that at a time when not only did we not know what genes were made of no one even gave a fuck about DNA. No one was paying attention to it. It was thought to be this sort of completely relevant molecule that had no uh, had very little significance. Um, and, it, and it came as a complete surprise to everyone when it, or to a lot of people, when it turned out that in fact DNA is you know, the molecule that carries our genes and it's completely central to every, uh, virtually every living thing. And a, a right. lot of people it's would sort of the essence of what we are. Yeah, and that was a surprise, <laughs> um, and completely took a lot of people aback. And so. As you, and the people who were working in the origin of life, were a lot of them, I think, were kind of slow to appreciate just how much intricacy was going on inside living cells. And this, and this, you know, as the details sort of accumulated over the decades, it sort of got to the point where it was getting slightly embarrassing. Um, but yeah, so what we have, what you have inside a living cell is you've got DNA at the core of it, and the DNA is the instructions. And first of all, the DNA is converted into another thing called RNA, which is kind of a close cousin of it. And then that is used as a template for making proteins. And then the proteins go and do a whole bunch of stuff around the cell and keep and run the metabolism. And some of them are installed in the outer wall to sort of let things in or pump out bad stuff. And all the other intricate stuff is going on. It's incredibly interdependent. You, know, you can't have proteins nowadays without having rna to be the template and you can't have rna without the dna that the instructions are being copied from but the and here is where the circle closes dna doesn't survive without proteins because it's normal in your cells dna is in is packed into in by these proteins which surround it and protect it and if any part of it gets broken or damaged a, a, a working enzyme which is made of protein will come in and fix it and the DNA only copies because there's a protein called a replicase that copies it. So it's yeah, it's this sort of vicious cycle thing, and yeah, and it leads you, as you say, into these chicken and egg paradoxes. Well, which bit came first? You could you can imagine DNA forming, but what would it do? The answer is that it'd fall to bits, and you can imagine Great. a protein forming, but again, same problem. Um, so it's sort of at this point the story kind of splits into three different scientific camps uh, according to which one they think came first right the the rna the container or the protein basically yeah uh, and and a, and a fourth one which was um metabolism first so basically the the, the chemical reactions that i was talking about right. that are sort of involved in like taking in nutrients and digesting them and building stuff um i mean in truth i've divided it into those four um that's mostly for the sake of simplicity and for telling the story in reality you know, the way that this actually played out was like huge numbers of different ideas were being kicked around and there were all these sort of different combinations and it, it was this huge like multifactorial horrible complicated mess of disagreement which i being the genius storyteller that i am have, have, have narrowed down into four competing schools which mostly <laughs> make sense of it but there is you know but there is yeah, there was overlap and not you know even people within those schools had like their own different variants of them and were going off on all these sort of little um depending on your point of view either sort of bold explorations or blind alleys and yeah it was a it became what what had been a very sort of 
consensus driven feel that it was basically oh it's the primordial soup and we've just got to figure out the details um turned into yeah this massive disagreement and people and people sort of went off in all these different directions so some people said oh well it must have been a gene that came first probably made out of rna and others said no no it must have been proteins because proteins can do lots of stuff so they you know they would have been able to sort of get all the other mechanisms of the cell started and still other people said well but hang on if all you've got is some molecules floating around in the water they're just going to drift apart you know you're not you need a container to hold them together so you're going to have to have the lipids to make an outer membrane and be a chamber to contain all of this stuff and they basically spent sort of from the the 70s through into the early 21st century arguing increasingly vociferously like (laughs) i i couldn't find any reports of like a punch-up at a conference i couldn't find that but certainly there was an awful lot of oh well he's just a fucking idiot um, or he, oh God, that man, oh, he's a lunatic. Um, well, there's specifically a quote that I highlighted in the book, a quotation from Harold Bernhardt, which is the uh, RNA world hypothesis was the worst theory of the early evolution of life, <laughs> except for all the others. Yes. And that's the title of a paper, right? <laughs> he did that. Um, there, was a, there was another one which I could, where um, one of the sort of key ideas of life is that one of the key ideas is that you know, life began at the bottom of the sea in a hydrothermal vent, kind of like a hot spring. And someone wrote in a paper that that idea should lay at the bottom of the ocean buried. <laughs> it's like, oh, you g- c- could you guys not just like smoke some weed and and <laughs> chill the <laughs> fuck out? <laughs> just learn uh, to get along. Everything's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- I mean, this is I mean, funny. I mean, you say that as a joke, but. <laughs> I'm not sure that there isn't quite a lot of truth to it in the end Um, because I think a lot of these ideas I think this is and I'm really sorry this is a hideous cliche this is so overused but this is the blind men uh, trying to grope the elephant right and trying to figure out what the elephant is I I think this is what this story is Um, because you know the people who came up with say for the example the idea that life began with RNA they have some really good points rna does seem to be easier to make than dna there seem to be there are a a bunch of ways apparently that it could have formed on the early earth whereas dna seems to be really a lot harder to make um so that's so that's good and rna can fold itself up and it can act as um an enzyme which is something that you know up until the 1980s we thought it was only proteins that could do that um, but then, yeah, it turned out that RNA could as well. So it sort of became, this, you know, it's sort of a jack-of-all-trades molecule. Uh, you know, it could do several things at once. Now, in, like all jack-of-all-trades molecules, it's a bit rubbish at them. But this was, you know, there wasn't much competition back then. So maybe that would have been okay. And similarly, the people who said, oh, well, there must have been a container for the early life. They've kind of got a point as well. Because if you had, you know, you can imagine that, you know, if life is forming in this wide, expansive ocean, you know, you could have the first protein form, you know, 3000 kilometers away from the first bit of RNA. And fuck all will happen. Right. Um. And so the way that we the the field has sort of started to go is people have started to wonder well what happens if like you put some of these things together um, and is that like possible and I think what happened was that for a long time people kind of had almost a mental block about this because you know nucleic acids like DNA and RNA and proteins 
and the lipids that make up cell membranes, as chem- chemically, they're really, really different things. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, obviously they're all like based on like carbon and hydrogen and you know, the same sets of atoms, but in terms of their shape and the way that they behave, they're really different. And so there was this sort of general assumption that well, they'd never like form in the same place. They would never come from the same starting materials under roughly the same conditions. And so people sort of ch- chugged along for decades trying to make one or, one, or, one or the other of them until finally in the 21st century, really, people started to say, yeah, that's a bit of an assumption. What happens if we actually try it? And it turns out that actually they do form from the same kinds of things um, relatively easily. Um, and the, you can, there's a bunch of different ways that you can do this, which is itself encouraging, right? But... Um, a lot of them seem to come back to, and this is where the story gets weird, cyanide. Right. Um, so cyanide is is a really, really simple molecule. It's just a hydrogen attached to a carbon attached to a nitrogen. And the reason that we all know about cyanide is because it kills you. Right. You know, right. That, that's the, the entire reason cyanide is famous. But it's also very common. You know, you, it's actually um, because it's such a simple molecule. It's found in outer space, all over the place. It's been, you know, it's been known that it, you know that it's been out that, that it's out there. Um, and it and cyanide-based molecules are very, very reactive, and they change into all sorts of different things. And so, over the course of the last twenty years, really, people have shown that you can take a couple of, sort of fairly simple carbon-based chemicals, some of them sort of cyanide-based, a couple of other sort of related things. And if you just sort of, you know, heat them a bit or um, shine a light on them or get them wet and then get and then dry them out and then wet them and dry them out, just, just kind of ordinary, ordinary everyday stuff that would happen like on the road outside your house on a, on a usual day. Um, depending on exactly the, the sequence of things that they go through, they might you might get building blocks of RNA or amino acids, or um, the building blocks of the lipids that are going to form your cell membrane. So it turns out that, in fact, you know, instead of... We don't, in a sense, have to worry about, oh, well, what can RNA do on its own, or what can protein do on its own? We don't necessarily have this chicken and egg problem, after all, because, in fact, maybe they all just sort of kind of form together in a melting pot, and then it's just a que- and then it's more of a question of well, how do they like self-assemble? What you know, what how do they sort of start to work together? But in a sense, the problem is actually maybe a little bit easier than we thought it was because everyone assumed you know these things will never form together; they'll never just conveniently pop up. Um, but maybe given the right sort of conditions, maybe they might. And and that's something also that surprised me was this idea that potentially, I I've always thought of life as this one absurdly unlikely thing but it just had to happen once and it stuck and and then that got the first really basic single cell organism and so on and eventually by natural selection we happened um but it sounds like there was a possibility that it has happened many many times on earth i yeah i think that's very possible um I mean, it's sort of. I think it's kind of unlikely that any like brand new life would form now, but that's because something would eat it, right? You, you, you know, you might sort of go through the beginnings of this process, and you'd get like a pro, you know, the, a, a really simple protein or something, but then some bacteria would go wandering past and go, oh, lunch, and that right. would be the and end. And that of- sort of answers the question of why hasn't life spontaneously generated again in our in our existence or in more recent history? Yeah, I, I think it's very possible that maybe the, the some of the processes might still be happening. Um, but at least in certain places, but yeah, they just wouldn't get very far because yeah, 
some, something we just see it and call it lunch. What what are the what are the oldest uh, like currently living organisms that we think are the same as they were at their inception? Well, nothing's you know the I mean? not not. I guess nothing's the same. Yeah, why would it be the same? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a really pedantic answer. Um, no, no. <laughs> yeah, obviously, obviously, nothing's sort of exactly the same because you know because everything's been evolving for billions of years. But right. um, but, but there are lots of. Um, so really simple single-celled organisms that probably haven't changed too much. Uh, you know, they're probably kind of living similar kind of lifestyles, like eating something similar to what their ancestors ate three and a half billion years ago, probably roughly the same sort of shape and size. And so what we're basically talking about here are bacteria, which are, I think are a familiar name to most people, which are, you know, as I say, simple single-celled organisms. And there's also another group, called the archaea and these um for a long time they were actually just thought to be bacteria no one realized they were different but it's only when you sort of start to look at their genetics and the the internal chemistry of the cells that you realize that actually they are quite different like their outer membranes are made of something different for example um so that the what we think what seems to have happened is that at some point yeah going back um probably more than three and a half billion years ago you had um, a population of um single-celled organisms and at some point in there they split into two they split into two populations one of which became the bacteria and one became the archaea um so yeah you yeah you can find and obviously bacteria are everywhere and pretty much so are archaea they were when they were first discovered they were kind of thought to be all um what are called extremophiles so things that, that live in like really hot places or really acidic places or something like that but in fact there are archaea living in our guts and there's and um and i think there's you know they live in like mud and places like that so you know they're again they're really really common um but yeah any yeah anything that is um a, a simple single cell um like that like bacteria so but the bacteria and archaea that has those groups have been around uh for sort of many billions of years and it's things like animals and plants and fungi that are more recent um you know we're kind of relative newcomers on the scene and the bacteria and the archaea were there for billions of years before we ever came along so now now that we can uh look at dna and uh work out you know we can um see exactly what it's made of and what the various codes are uh the genetic codes i know it says oh, sorry in your book you're they're using that to try and track or try and more closely identify what could be the last universal common ancestor yeah that's right so essentially you um the last universal common ancestor was yeah this population of organisms that was living um, which eventually gave rise to both bacteria and archaea and later to things like us. Um, so what you do is that you look at as many um, modern organisms as possible from as from widely, that, things that are as, un, as unrelated to each other as it's possible to be. Um, and you see, well, which genes do they all have in common? So if, if there's a, you know if there's a gene that only one of them has and most of the others don't have it, probably that gene arose quite recently. So probably that wasn't there in the last universal common ancestor. But if there's something that everything has got in pretty much exactly the same form, then you sort of start to think, ah, that one probably does come from the last universal common ancestor, which I'm now going to start calling Luca because it's just too exhausting to say all four yeah, words. Yeah. God, the bloody so scientists. I, I, I have a question... I, I think I may I know the answer to this, but I don't know because when I was when I was reading that chapter, I was wondering how do we know that there is just one Luca, 
and there isn't a sort of the eukaryotes and archaea have come from two different spontaneous generations of life on two different sides of the planet so the reason we're um everyone is pretty confident about that is because all these organisms no matter how different they are all first of all they're all using dna for their genes um, they all have a whole bunch of genes in common like a couple a few hundred probably and they're all using the same genetic code. So the, and the genetic code is basically the way that um, the information that's stored on a bit of DNA molecule is used to um, determine the structure of a protein. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you remember your sort of DNA molecule, it has the four letters, uh, A, T, C, and G, and they're just running a sort of really long line all the way along it. And when you make, when the cell makes a protein, it sort of reads off that list of letters and each sort of, and the sequence of letters tells it what, amino acids to put into the protein in which, in which order so it's basically like a sort of blueprint or a list of instructions and in every living organism the same um letters on the dna on the dna molecule tell do the same thing for the protein to give it the same set of instructions now if they were you know using different codes you know if you had some organisms where like i don't know ATC meant put the glycine amino acid in and in some other organisms ATC meant oh no let's put in alanine that would actually probably suggest like independent origins that might re that might really hint at like sort of separate origins of life but the fact that everything's using the same genetic code that suggests that they really are come are coming from the same place now that doesn't mean that there weren't multiple origins um because you know one of the things that sort of comes out, like, and you were sort of touching about touching on this earlier, is that um, the the origin of life may not have been that wildly unlikely. You know, given the right circumstances, it may have happened quite quickly. And that that's obviously that's a sentence with a hell of a caveat in it, right? Given the right circumstances, what the fuck does that mean? And we you know, and we don't actually know exactly how precise those circumstances have to be. Right. Um, but it's very possible that you know, if at a certain point in um, Earth's history, the conditions were just right possibly over quite you know large areas of the planet or at least on a whole bunch of different little places so you may well have had like a half dozen or 20 or 5000 origins of life all just happening in different bits of the ocean or different ponds on land or wherever it was um but then either those things sort of cooperated and merged or some of them died out or outcompeted until eventually one just became dominant and that's what led to everything that we now see today um you know it's you know but very possibly in those early days you know there were you know two or three different populations on opposite sides of the planet that had never met and were using like different genetic codes and then eventually one of them got clobbered in the face by a meteor or just got eaten by the other lot um and, and or just know, never made it past yeah um, or yeah or indeed or as you say yeah just never um, so that that also then asks, sort of, if life has formed on other planets, would it use something similar to our DNA system, or could it be entirely different? The, yeah, this is the <laughs> this is the perennial question: How different could life be? Um, uh, part of me just sort of wants to say, like, ask me again in fifty years, and like, <laughs> and, uh, and, I'll and I'll tell you what happened when we when we found life on Mars or wherever. But um, you're not going to be satisfied with that, so I'll have a go. Um, I think I I don't think at this point we have 
sort of particularly good reason to think that life has to be based on DNA. You know, people have made alternative nucleic acids in the lab. There are a whole bunch of different ones that have been made. And a lot, and they all seem to roughly work. You know, they, they all sort of, you know, carry the sort of, you know, the equivalent of letters along their length and they seem to like, like copy themselves or can be copied. Um, so I don't think the the idea that life has to be based on DNA is necessarily going to hold water. Although, you know, again, you know, I might, that could, that could turn out to be wrong. Um, I think there are going to be probably some of the more abstract properties of life that maybe are quite hard to get around. Um, so one of the, you know, one of the things that life, that all life seems to do is it copies itself in one respect or another, you know, um, you know, bacteria copy themselves when they divide in two. Um, and, you know, slightly more complicated animals like us have this really faffy and, um, frankly, illogical way of doing it. But although I do think it's more fun than the bacteria do. <laughs> um, but you know, that ability to copy yourself, and that and that goes right down to the molecular level where, you know, DNA... Um, I, I shouldn't say that it copies itself because it doesn't. It needs help to do it. But DNA does get copied. Um that that's there needs to be something in there that is uh able to to copy itself or be copied because otherwise i don't think you get i don't think you'd really be able to call it life um you know people have speculated about things like could there be life for example in the oceans of titan where you know the oceans aren't or aren't made of water on titan because it, it's like ridiculously cold and i think the oceans are methane um that's kind of an interesting idea i don't know if that's going to be possible or not i kind of i th- funnily enough i think the fact that it's that the temperatures are so cold that you can that you can have an, an ocean of methane might actually be the problem like i think it might be so cold that whatever reactions were interested in happening would just be happening too slowly and you'd never really get anything terribly lifelike but could be wrong um and i know nasa does have a plan to send a little helicopter drone into the atmosphere of titan to go and have a swiz so um you know in in 10 or 15 years time you might you, you might play this back and go huh, he, he was wrong about that one um right. but I, th- I think it's more yeah i think it's less to do with the the specific chemistry of life and more to do with the um the sort of deeper properties like being able to copy yourself but imperfectly um, which sort of you know because that's the root of evolution is being able to you know make a copy of yourself that's not quite the same as the original, but isn't so wildly different that it just breaks. Um, yeah, I think that things like that are going to be sort of probably I think universal, but I'm not sure that DNA would be. And I'm to sort of give the other end of that argument, I'm also not sure that the, some of the wilder ideas are ever going to pan out. Like people talk about the idea of, well, could life be based on silicon instead of carbon? Could, the idea being that silicon is right next to carbon on the periodic table, so it behaves quite similarly to it. But it doesn't seem to behave similarly enough. Like the thing with carbon is that it can create this whole raft of different structures that are, you know when you you look at the structure of a protein and there's like hundreds or even thousands of individual atoms all arranged in these beautiful um three-dimensional structures and silicon just kind of doesn't seem to be able to do that with quite the same level of flair uh, right maybe it could under different circ- under like different conditions who knows but um so, yeah so seems is unlikely. it possible that that the same way in actual evolution in later evolution different species have through completely different routes come to the same solution like bats and dolphins both having sonar for example is it possible that two different life formations on different planets both ended up essentially 
by chance and natural selection evolving the same solution to replication and like end up with something extremely close to dna yeah very it's dis- it's very very possible yeah i think i think that's very likely um and i i don't think we quite we don't know like how much um how many degrees of freedom there are really in terms you know i said that you know there's alternatives to dna i think yeah you know, there's probably limits to how different you can get before it just stops working but i don't think we sort of quite know how much freedom there is there i mean one of the um one there was a study that came out really recently so this isn't in the book because um it only came out a few weeks ago and you know publishing schedules um but uh this was a study in science where they would they basically sort of compiled all the known prebiotic chemistry reactions so all those different reactions going right back to the 50s and they put them all together into like this gigantic database and they built essentially a network of these reactions and it's this hugely ramifying thing where they you know they basically start with a couple with like six really simple chemicals like carbon dioxide and they get to like you know dna at the other end of it um but one of the things that was really interesting about this was that they found that the network was really robust. And what that what that sort of technically means is that you could knock whole bits of it out. You could literally say, right, this whole set of reactions, we're just going to disallow that. That's not allowed to happen. And they still, the chemical, there were still pathways that the chemicals could take to sort of transform themselves and get to things like DNA and protein. Even if huge, yeah, even if huge chunks of the reaction network were missing. Um and so, yeah, that's, and I think that kind of speaks to what um, we were saying that this might not actually be as unlikely as it as it sort of initially seemed because, yeah, you, when you if you look at that network and it's actually robust to losing huge swathes of itself, that kind of suggests that actually, given the given the right starting materials, given the right kind of environment, it might actually be quite a robust kind of a process. So, without putting you too much on the spot. What I'll go on then. The mo- yeah. No, I was just going to say, what was the most surprising thing you found when you were researching and then writing the book, or the most, or the idea that really hit you the hardest? The thing, I mean, one of the things that surprised me was just how many times people had said the same bloody thing um, repeatedly and in different vari- <laughs> in different words, without and just constantly coming back to the same bloody arguments, but. Um, I think the, 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 the idea that hit me the hardest um, was there's a line... Of, you know the film Annihilation, the, um, the sort of Alex Garland adaptation of the, of the novel with um, Natalie Portman as the scientist going into the weird and woolly um, place in Louisiana where evolution has gone completely batshit? Um, there's a line in that where you know, Natalie Portman is giving a lecture about, uh, about the origin of life and she says that um if, you know at some point in the distant history there was a single cell that was alone in the universe you know the you know the first life form and it was completely alone um and that's a really sort of kind of resonant idea but i actually think it might be completely wrong um i think that the first life might actually have been instantly a community you know, they, so you know, I was talking. You know, we were talking about how these processes, under the right circumstances, probably work quite well. So, if you imagine that you have like a little, I don't know, a pool or a lake or something on the the surface of the earth, where the conditions are just right, you're not gonna. You're quite unlikely to just get one um, living cell or or one sort of simple organism. Probably, you're going to get a whole bunch of them. 
all at once all different and all of them kind of incomplete so you maybe you know there's one of them that can make a particular protein that everyone else needs so it ha- so they have to share and then the other, somebody else can do some other little trick that, ev- that again everybody else needs to get in on um so it's gonna sound a little bit soppy but i actually think that life might have been a community the whole time um and this sort of whole idea of like the sort of the lone organism standing nobly by itself staring at the distant horizon wondering if it'll ever have any company um is probably completely wrong and in fact we need to think about when you um there's a line in one of the books that i read which said that the origin of life isn't the origin of the first organism it's the origin of the first ecosystem um yeah it's the origin of a community of simple interacting organisms that are interdependent um and yeah that sort of stuck with me i guess because you know in in my day job when i'm not writing about the origin of life you know a lot of the stuff that i do is about the environment and about climate change and like endangered species and all these sort of wonderfully cheerful topics um you know thank god we've had covid to distract us from all the environmental (laughs) fuck ups that are going on um but uh, and sometimes the origin of life, I think, because it you know, is so distant and so far in the past, can seem re- really sort of foreign and different to life as it is today. But in fact, I think on this one point, if on nothing else, I think it may actually have been very much the same. That you know, just as you know, the, the first living organisms were, in fact, were so crude and crappy and kind of helpless that they were in, they, they were dependent on their neighbours, and so are we in a, in our you know four and a half billion years later we are still completely dependent and tied up with the entire rest of the ecosystem and we you know, we still need the you know pollinating insects and the bacteria in our guts and all the other stuff you know they they are all literally our bloody cousins and we'd be fucked without them and funnily enough i think that is that sort of idea of like a constant um living community that's been around on this planet and possibly nowhere else for like over three and a half billion years that has kind of stuck with me (laughs) i i I agree that that was what stuck with me the most from the book and the book we should probably wrap this up but the book is called the genesis quest by michael marshall we'll put a link to it on the show notes and on the website the the subtitle is the geniuses and eccentrics on a journey to uncover the origin of life on earth Uh, michael how how can our listeners find you in general i know you're on twitter yeah i'm on twitter as uh, m underscore c underscore marshall um i also i have a website which is just michaelcmarshall.com i had to do the c because there's the other guy called michael marshall and he was ahead of me um (laughs) so yeah um and that has like and my website has stuff about the book and about all the and links to all the other places you can find me so i'm also i'm also on facebook as uh oh god what am i on facebook christ um michael.marshall.writer yeah yeah just write it in the bottom that'll probably be simpler Mm -hmm. um but yeah i'm particularly i'm mostly sort of yeah i'm pretty active on twitter so I'm generally on there and anytime I've got a new story out or um yeah or you know a new book anything like that um they t- yeah it tends to go there and am I right to thinking the book is already out in Britain and is about to come out in America that's right yeah it's out in Britain and it will be out in America on the 30th of October okay excellent so that'll be very shortly after we put the episode up so get on oh, it listeners yeah. <laughs> it's like it. I planned it you can read the version of the book that I read, but with some of the words slightly changed. <laughs> some some use missing. And um but uh, I'm guessing snooker ball changed to billiard ball. Was that a change? <laughs> I think oh the, the, the one that you noticed was that I'd used Chinese whispers 
and the, um, oh, yeah, that's um, cool. and in America that's called telephone, um, <laughs> yes. which in that's my first draft I did flag. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so I did flag it. So if the, if it's not if it's not been changed in the US edition, that's not my fault. <laughs> But thank, thank you so much for joining yeah. us, Michael. It's been a treat just catching up with you. We haven't spoken in so long. I know, it's been bloody ages, hasn't it? It's been like 15 years or something. Yeah, but thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed myself. And, well, so have I. And it's, listeners, get at the book. Yeah, it's there's a lot yes, more please do, Yes, please do do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find us, as always, at probablyscience.com, on Twitter, at probablyscience, individually, at Andy T. Wood, and at Matt Kirshen. Uh, science at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you'd like us to cover on future episodes. Michael, thanks so much for joining us, and listeners, see you next time. Take care.